ahead and turn in our Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 23. For those of you that are new to Sovereign Grace, we're presently in a series looking at the Gospel of Luke. This is a Gospel that is written by a doctor, a physician, and he has given his life, really, to compiling a narrative on all the things of Jesus. He's sponsored by a man called Theophilus, and the fruit of it all is what you have in front of us right here in our Bibles. It is a letter compiling all the different things that he has learned to understand about Jesus from loads and loads of eyewitnesses. And his whole premise in writing it is so that we may have certainty concerning the things we've been taught, that we may know this is true, that we may know this is the way it works. And as he's taught us through this gospel, we now arrive at the scene where it has been leaning all along, namely the cross. So let's read together Luke chapter 23. For our guests, we also have it on the screen in front of us. We're going to read from verse 26 through to 34. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid him on the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming where they will say, Blessed are the barren of the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. Let's pray. Lord, Lord, as we gather around your word this morning, we are on holy ground. This is the moment where you would give your life as a ransom for many. Lord, it can be familiar to many of us in the room, but I pray that it would be eerily unfamiliar today. As we walk with you in your final hours, oh Lord, did you open our eyes to behold the glories of what is written here? Would you help us see that this is just for everyone? This is for us. Every single individual in this room, in this moment. Lord, speak to us by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, as we walk with Jesus here on the Via Doloroso, which literally translates as the road of sorrows, there is no doubt that Jesus has already suffered so many things. Just the night before we see him in Gethsemane, as he contemplated what it would mean for him, the Holy One, to bear away our sin. And we learn in that verse that his soul became sorrowful even unto death. William Lane, in his commentary, says, Jesus came to be with the Father for one final interlude before his betrayal, but found hell rather than heaven open before him, and he staggered. 
Just the night before this scene took place, Jesus then is in the garden of Gethsemane. He is sweating so much it is like drops of blood falling from his mind. He is distressed in his soul to the point where he actually falls over. Staggering. Why? Because hell, not heaven, opens up before him in this moment. He then comes out of the garden and he is betrayed into the hands of the chief priests and the scribes. He is turned over to Caiaphas and he undergoes a religious trial. And it's a religious trial in which he is struck around the face and then subjected to a series of blows from the temple guards as they blindfold him and spit on him and begin to strike him, asking him to prophesy, who was it that just struck you? He's then handed over to a political trial to Herod. Another joke of a trial as he spends time in an unjust courtroom that would conclude with him being scourged. A horrendous suffering that Brendan outlined for us last week. You would, to be scourged, you would have a flagellum whip start to be whipping you. A flagellum whip is made out of leather and they'd put bits of bone and metal in it and it was designed deliberately so that when you're whipped by it, it would pull flesh back with it and effectively destroy you. Eusebius, a Greek historian at the time, tells of martyrs who were torn by scourges down to the deep-seated veins and arteries so that the hidden contents of the recesses of their bodies, their entrails and organs, were exposed to sight. This had been prophesied about Jesus hundreds of years earlier. In Isaiah 52 verse 14, it says, His appearance was so marred beyond human resemblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Hundreds of years before it was prophesied that there would be a time to come in a Messiah's life where his resemblance would be totally deformed. That's what happened as Jesus was scourged. And then finally, once the Roman soldiers' fun had concluded, they presented Jesus as the coming king. His brow was placed upon his brow, a crown of thorns in a mocking tone. His bloodied body was covered in a purple robe, again in a, blocking, in a mocking tone. And together, they then led him out to crucify him. You know, he had already suffered so much before this scene that we look at today has even happened. And yet in reality, his suffering has only just begun. And yet, my friends, as we walk along the Via Doloroso today, the road of sorrows, we find ourselves coming face to face with a most staggering scene of forgiveness, do we not? It's something written for us to help us understand just how incredible and glorious Jesus really is. It is a startling scene of forgiveness. So I have two points this morning. Number one, the startling scene attended. I want us to walk along this road of sorrows with Jesus. I want us to smell the air. I want us to experience what he's experiencing around him. And then number two, the startling scene applied. As I want us to understand, it does apply. And I really come to this with one hope. And it's the hope that we'd all realize this morning That this cry of forgiveness to which all this leads isn't just for the world. It's not just this blob of people out there. But it's really personal. And it's for you. And it's for me. Two points. The number one, the startling scene attended. It is customary, it always was, for the condemned criminal 
to have the cross placed upon their back, or at least the crossbar of the cross, which itself weighed 100 pounds. They would carry it themselves all the way to the skull, or Golgotha as we know it today, where they would be crucified. And it is evident then, as Jesus, having no exceptions to him, as he starts out this journey, he is in fact carrying his own cross. And yet it would appear he has become so weakened by the beating and the scourging that he can't carry it anymore. The concern for the soldiers in this moment is he might die right here on the Via Dolorosa. We may not make it to there. So what are they going to do? Well, their answer comes in the form of when one very surprised North African man from the city of Cyrene, the place that is now modern day Libya. And this is what we read about him because this is one startled Cyrenian that we read about. Verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. Oh, my friends, get in the scene. Imagine the scene. What a startled moment this must have been for Simon. Simon, it would appear, is likely a Cyrenian Jew who's come in for the Passover. People would come in from all around. All the Jews would gather in Jerusalem for the Passover. It says here that he came in from the country. For all we know, he may still be settling into Jerusalem in this moment. But now as he's passing through, the Roman centurion see him. You, come here. And now he finds himself in the most horrendous of unfolding of dramas as he involuntarily is forced to join in this procession. So imagine the scene. Jesus is leading the line in a weakened state. The way it would work is you would have four Roman soldiers surrounding you. You just stand in the middle of effectively a box. Jesus is leading the line, it says, and behind him is now this dude, Simon, Imagine the scene. He is bent over double with now a cross on his back following behind Jesus and the soldiers. What a startling scene this is. A startling scene as you see Jesus still moving forward. But even more startling as you see Simon behind him. And what is most startling about it, I think, is the reality that Simon of Cyrene, just like would be true for each one of us, actually did deserve the cross. See, it's shocking. But that's the truth. See, the truth of the Bible, as you read through this book, one of the things that's clear in, in God's word is that God actually made us. It was God that actually knitted you and me together in our mother's womb. He is the creator of all. The reason why we go around the world and go, this place is amazing, because somebody designed it. Somebody actually created it to be amazing. And when you look at it, and when you look out your airplane window... Or you go on your day off to the beach and you go, this is amazing. He knows it's amazing. That's why on the seventh day he said everything he had made was good. It is amazing to look at. As a pinnacle of creation, he made humankind, man and woman. He made the human race. And he designed us to find our identity and our hope and our understanding all in him. The challenge is each and every one of us decided, I don't want to find my identity and my hope in him. I want to find my identity and hope in me. I don't want the creator, but I do want to enjoy the created. I'm going to give myself to creation. It never really quite satisfies me in the way I'd hoped, but I'm going to give myself to creation. And we reject the creator. By very nature, then, we are, according to the Bible, objects of God's wrath. Why? Well, because as Romans 3 verse 23 tells us, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
See, God is a righteous judge. How would you feel if something horrendous happened to your child and you went into the courtroom and the judge says, well, never mind. It's no big deal. Everything in us would go, that's wrong. That's unjust. Well, we have sinned before God. And so it is also needs to be consequenced. He's a God of justice. That feeling that you have in your being of justice, where does that come from? Has it just evolved? No, God made you like that because he made you in his image. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so ultimately we stand before the judge condemned. And the ultimate wages of that sin, Paul tells us in Romans 6, is death. Physical death, the reality that one day we will die. And also spiritual death, the reality that we will suffer the consequences of our sin before a righteous and holy God. Well, back then to the scene. Because what a wonderful and overwhelming, startling picture this is. Because what this is a picture of right here, I submit to you, is substitution. Simon deserves to die on the cross. Simon deserves death. Simon deserves to be cut off from God for all eternity. But there is one standing just in front of him whose name is Jesus, who is going to take his place. That's substitution. It's the staggering reality. This scene is filled with things that we are meant to notice. And this wonderful and incredible picture of substitution is one of them. What a startled Cyrenian this man is. And yet even more startled when he gets to the end of the road and the cross goes off him. And as he walks away, Jesus is nailed to it. He deserves it just like we do. But Jesus took it. You see right here then a startled Cyrenian in verse 26. And then as the story goes on, you see a startled group of mourners. Verse 27 through 31. It says, And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Imagine the scene. Simon then is stooped and steady as he carries the cross. Jesus is faint and weak and moving them all forward. And all around them, if you are listening in in this moment, is the steady din of mourning and wailing. See, this scene, this part of the scene is only recorded for us in Luke. It's only here in this gospel that you see this actually taking place. And the reason is because Luke is trying to bring out here something of the sympathy and sorrow that so many people felt for Jesus. And in particular, a whole group and multitude of women. See, there were still many people in Jerusalem at this point that did admire and care about Jesus. I mean, he has done so many good things, is he not? He's healed the sick and he's rebuked demons. There's so many people that would have been affected by the fruit of his labors. And here is a group of them following behind Jesus, weeping and wailing and mourning. Because we care about you. And we admire you. And this breaks our heart that this is happening. And so Jesus addresses them in love and care with a most 
startling message. As he turns to them and he says, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. And then he drives that gracious warning home with both a prophecy and a proverb. You know, it can be confusing when you first come upon it, but here's the reality. This is a warning of love and care from the Savior to those following him. Here is an expression of his care and his mercy and his love for them. And his point is this, listen, I appreciate your weeping. I appreciate your mourning, but swap your weeping with repentance and faith. Because there is a time in coming when I will be returning and I will judge the living and the dead. You are an object of God's righteous wrath, but I came to seek and to save the lost. So stop weeping and start putting your faith in me as your Lord and Savior. That's his point when he says a time is coming when you will wish you never had children. When you wish you'd never brought people into the world because you will start to see the righteous wrath of God poured out on them. They will be called blessed in that day not to be actually somebody who's given birth. His point then all along is, I love you. I am for you. I've come to seek and save the lost. Put your faith in me and be reconciled to the Father. Through this prophetic word, then he warns of the coming judgment of God in creation. And then in the, in his, in the proverbial sense at the end, he basically says, listen, if t- people didn't believe in me when I was walking around, which is effectively the green of wood, then I dread to think what's going to happen after I'm gone. It's a warning to them. Ladies, I love you. I'm for you. Put away your weeping. Put on faith. Even now, Jesus is thinking of others. But then this scene crescendos with the startle of a cross and a cry. Verse 32 and 33. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull... They were they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. My friends, this is staggering. This is the moment when Jesus gives his life as a ransom for many. It's so brief in the way Dr. Luke records it, but there is so much going on here. And it is startling. This is the King of kings and Lord of lords. This is the one who is supreme in all creation. This is the one who is supreme over the church. This is the one who is supreme in life. For the fullness of God dwells bodily in him. And now they crucify him. John Stott in his wonderful book, The Cross of Christ, outlines what takes place for Jesus in this way. He says, when they reached the site of the crucifixion, he was again stripped naked. He was laid on the cross and six inch nails were driven into his forearms just above the wrist. His knees were twisted sideways so that the ankles could be nailed between the tibia and the Achilles tendon. He was lifted on the cross, which was then dropped into a socket in the ground. There he was left to hang in intense heat and unbearable thirst, exposed to the mockery and ridicule of the crowd. He hung in unthinkable pain for six hours while his life slowly drained away. It was the height of pain and the depth of shame. And so it was. This was the height of pain and the depth of shame. As he hangs there in agony, and as the father, even now, seeing his son as becoming a curse for the world, starts to turn his face away. 
That's why it goes dark. Because the Father is now positioning in his righteous anger for our sin onto his Son. Two criminals then were crucified on his right and to his left. Again, that was to fill a prophecy in Isaiah 53 verse 12. It says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. So he was. Hundreds of years before, it says, this is how the Savior, the Messiah, the coming King would die. He would be numbered among the transgressors. And there he is with with these criminals to the right and to the left. It is the height of pain and the depth of shame. And my friends, if there was ever a moment that you could understand the Savior thinking about himself, then surely this was it, don't you think? If there was ever a moment in his life where you just think, forget about everybody else, just get through it, then surely this would be the moment that you would pick on. I mean, he is hanging there in the height of pain and the depth of shame. The father himself is turning his face away from his son. His son knew that was going to happen. He'd known all along. He started to experience it and sees it just the night before in the Garden of Gethsemane. Which is why he staggered. Not because of the physical pain, but what it was to be cut off from his father. And now he hangs there and he's experiencing it all. People have left him. His friends have left him. They've run away. He hangs there in the height of pain and the depth of shame. And yet even now, even as the soldiers, it says, started to cast lots for his garments. What a a terrible scene. I mean, the reason why they're casting lots is because there's like five pieces of garments and there appears to be a few more than five of them. So they, they get rid of the good stuff. And then the other gospel tells us that it gets to his loincloth. And the point of the loincloth, the tunic, is it would be woven by tradition by your mum. Your mum would give you it. But there isn't enough of it to go around. So they start casting lots. That's happening right there. If there was ever a moment you could understand Jesus thinking about himself, surely this was it. And yet even now, he doesn't. Verse 34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Is that not staggering to you? What a startling response. The height of pain, the depth of shame, still thinking about you. Still thinking about me. Father, forgive them. For they know not what they are doing. What a startling cry this is. Even now he's not thinking about himself. He's thinking about us. What a startling cry this is. Because even now he's crying to the father saying, Father, they still don't get it. They still don't understand who I really am. They still don't see their need for a savior. They still don't understand where they stand as, they, as your creation before you as, your, as their creator. Oh, Father, please forgive them. Father, please show them patience. What a wonderful cry this is and what a startling cry of hope this is. Oh, Father, forgive them. Father, give them more time. Father, open their eyes. Well, in grace and mercy, as the story continues, that's exactly what happens. God the Father in his amazing grace does start to bring people to himself through the cross. We see it with the Roman centurion. As Jesus breathes his last, the Roman centurion himself that has been overseeing the whole thing, joining in with the mocking previously. 
then looks at him afresh and says, surely this man was and is the son of God. He realizes this is him and puts his faith in him, a life-changing moment for him. We see it with the thief on the cross, one of the men hanging next to him, as we'll see next week. Also, likewise, realizes this is him and responds with faith. And in that moment knows that heaven is going to be his home. And incredibly, it would appear as the story continues that the young man carrying in the cross, one Simon of Cyrene, would also go on to put his faith in Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. How do we know? Well, later on in the book of Mark chapter 15 and Romans chapter 16, we hear about Simon's sons who had given their life to the Lord, Alexander and Rufus. We then hear in Romans 16 about about Simon's wife, who had actually become like a mother to Paul, he says. It would appear that Simon has brought his family into the fold of Christianity, explaining to them about this man that he had to walk behind, but how he now believes is the Christ. Following on from this scene, so many people come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour. The Roman centurion, the thief on the cross, Simon of Cyrene, and hundreds and hundreds of thousands beyond as the gospel goes from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And the question that is implied, I think, as Dr. Luke pens this in and then looks up, is how will you respond? What will you do with it? What will you do with this most startling scene? Of forgiveness. And that's point two, just to close. The startling scene applied. See, maybe you're here today and you are, well, maybe you're here for the baby dedications. And so you are slightly startled by this message because as far as you were concerned, you were coming to hug your small child, have a few snacks and go home thinking happy thoughts. And instead you've got this dude telling you these ton of things that is quite morbid about Jesus. Maybe you're just passing by. Once upon a time, we had a lady drop in who was walking a dog and heard us sing, so she came in. I don't think she came back. The dog didn't come back either. But people come for a whole variety of different reasons. I get that. And so I'm sorry if this has startled you and taken your breath away somewhat. And yet in another sense, I'm not sorry at all. Because this is the truth. And it is the truth that can set you free. See, as I said before, the Bible's clear that God made us. It was God that knitted you together in your mother's womb. As we're all spending time going, ooh, ah, about these little babies today. Understand, you were once that as well. And you were an object of God's favor, having been knitted together by him. You're made, the Bible tells us, actually in his likeness. And you're made to find your identity in him, your hope in him, even your belonging in him. How many people in our world just constantly feel lonely? It's because the one relationship that can stop you feeling lonely is the one they don't want. When you know Jesus, you finally feel identity and belonging and understand who you are and whose you are and what you're about. God made you for identity and hope and belonging in him. But all like sheep, the Bible tells us, we've gone astray. We didn't fancy it. We're cool with the creation, but not the creator. We like your kingdom, but I don't want the king. That's what sin is. And by nature, we are an object of his wrath. However, John 3.16, Jesus himself 
It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. My friends, that son's name is Jesus. And he's the one that even now, as we read this text, is heading towards the cross. His name is Jesus. Why did he die? Well, to give his life away as a ransom for many. He gave his life away so that all those who would put their faith in him would not perish, but instead would have eternal life. Why? Because through the cross, they can all be forgiven. The consequence of their sin can be paid for in full by Jesus himself, which is what the substitutionary cross is all about. God could have left you. He could have left me. Simon of Cyrene, and insert your name there, could have been hanging on the cross moving forward, and Jesus could have stepped aside and said, hey, listen, it's not my problem, it's yours. That would have been perfectly legit. But Jesus doesn't. As Simon gets to the end, Jesus says, hey, I'll have that for you. That's what the gospel is all about. You know, so many times when we think of Christianity, we think, oh, I don't want that because it's about all these things that I got to do for God. Wrong! Christianity is about all these things that God did for you. What Jesus did for you. How he gave his life away as a ransom for many. And in response, the Bible is clear. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. My friends, whatever you've done in your life, however far gone you perceive yourself to be, I want to encourage you. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that he died and rose again for you, then boom, in a moment, you will be saved. That's how I got here too. I was 21 years old, unamazed by Jesus. But at 21 years old, this all started to make sense to me and I'm like, I'm all in. I put my faith in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. In that very moment, I knew for the first time what it meant to be forgiven. I knew for the first time what it meant to be adopted and have a relationship with God. And I knew for the first time that peace that surpasses all understanding, knowing when I die, heaven is my home. It's the glories of the gospel. And maybe today is your day. Brothers and sisters, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The Bible tells us in that moment when you do that, you will be washed as white as snow. Forgiven. Dealt with. Because Jesus paid it all in your place. Maybe you're here though today and you are already a Christian. And so you know, at least in your mind, that you are forgiven. That surely you have been forgiven, and yet, if you're honest, maybe you're here today, even as a Christian, specifically and painfully aware of past sins. We all have skeletons in our closet, do we not? Sometimes it's things that many people know about. Sometimes it's things that no one knows about. But we know. Maybe it's things that happened 20 years ago in your life. Maybe it's things that happened 20 minutes ago in your life. And yet Satan tempts you to despair and tells you of the guilt within. He wants to remind you of who you really are. Well, my friends, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, here's what I want to encourage you to do. When Satan tempts you to despair and tells you of the guilt within, 
upward you must look and see him there who made an end of all your sin. There is an adversary that is prowling around like a roaring lion that wants to bring you down. And one of the ways he wants to bring you down is by making you feel guilty and condemning you about things that happened in your past. Well, when that happens, you need to pull out your word that is a sword. Pull out Psalm 103 verse 12 that says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Pull out Romans 4 verse 7 to 8. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. For blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Amen. My friends, this is the way it works in the kingdom of God, which is why the Apostle Paul himself says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Jesus has paid it all. And so when Satan tempts you to despair and tells you of the guilt within, upward, you must look and see him there who made an end of all your sin. Past, present and future, boom, it is gone. He has paid for it in full. There is nothing left for you to pay. He drank the cup of God's wrath to its full. It's done. And so as Corrie ten Boom once famously said, understanding that God has dealt with your sin and put it down a great pond, don't start fishing for it and pulling it out again. Let it go. It's dealt with. Jesus has paid it all. Oh, what a most startling scene of forgiveness this is. A scene that begins with Jesus making his way up the Via Dolorosa, having already suffered so much, and it's a scene that culminates with a cross and a cry. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. My friends, this isn't just for the world. This is for you. And for me, this isn't just for a blob of nameless people. No, the one who knitted you together in your mother's womb is addressing you, specifically, personally. My friends, would we then live in the good of all that we see? Jesus has paid it all. And when we put our faith in him as a Lord and Savior, our sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. It's the scandal of grace. But it is his offer to you. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for reminding us this morning that our forgiveness did not come cheaply. It is not some throwaway forgiveness from you. No, it took the cross. It took you to keep moving forward. Lord, thank you for reminding us this morning in so many ways, in an illustrative way, we are Simon of Cyrene. We're standing behind you, heading to the cross that we should have been hanging on. But instead, we get to the end and you take it from us and take our place. Lord, as we gather around this startling scene of forgiveness, would we be amazed? For this is the power of the cross in our lives. It changes everything. And may we walk with you as our Lord and Savior and know the good of all that you've come to bring. In Jesus' name.